Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Christina Sandifer, Executive Vice President and Attorney with the Free Market Goldwater Institute in Arizona. She is the author of the 2015 book, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America. It's a co-authored book. She wrote it with Timothy Sandifer. Today, we'll discuss that book and its themes. So welcome to the show, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So for listeners, I've also interviewed Timothy Sandifer about his books on Frederick Douglass and Jacob Bernofsky. So I consider this my Sandifer hat trick. <laughs> I like that. You know, I... I um our relationship can kind of be traced over the course of Tim's books because I actually met Tim uh, because I had read one of his first books. And then we got to know each other when I edited, I think, the second or third book. And then eventually we co-authored a book together. And then after that, he we got married and he dedicated a book to me. So you can kind of trace the evolution of the Sandifer family uh, through Tim's books. Oh, I didn't notice the uh, dedication. What was the first book? So actually, it was an earlier version of the book we're going to talk about today. It was the sort of the first edition of Cornerstone, which came out immediately after the Kilo decision. And then in the 10 years between then and when we published the second edition, things had changed so much that we actually just completely rewrote it together. Wow. So I didn't know that's actually, not only did you co-write it, but that's sort of responsible for your relationship. It is. It is. That's that's an interesting detail. That is a nerdy detail that only libertarians would love. Well, later on, I want to do a little bit of personal stuff, but I was going to ask you how that works, um, you know, co-authoring and working with your spouse. Yes. Because for some people, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. Well, I think I think when you are are united by you know a passion for property rights and freedom, um, you know that's that's how it works. And there's also, I know it was fun, a fun detail on the cover of the book. There's a great quote by George Will. And I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's basically you're a great liberty team um, changing the country for, you know, for good or whatever, whatever you said. But I thought that was a nice compliment to you both. That, that was the, probably the highlight of my career. I mean, you know, I've, I've passed some laws and won some lawsuits, but I'll tell you, having George Will give that kind of an endorsement, that was, that was probably one of the things I'm most proudest of. So, of course, we had to put it on the cover. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, all right, so I wanted to start, I want to dig into the book over the course of the conversation, but I thought we could start with some current events since there are some things happening that are directly relevant to the topic at hand. So today we hear a lot of people on the left say things like people before property. The idea seems to be that we should place human beings and their well-being before or is more important than obsessing about their property rights. So how do you how do you respond to claims like that? Yeah, you know, this is not a new claim, but as you said, it's become more prevalent as of late and it's it's really kind of an excuse to justify uh, you know, breaking contracts or taking people's property away or even some of the violent riots that we've that we've seen over the past year. Um, and really, you know, this is this is a false dichotomy. The idea that we can somehow choose between, you know, human rights or people and property rights or that one's somehow superior to the other, it's, it's just a false choice because the reality is that you can't separate the two. You, you cannot separate people from their property and their property rights. If you take away somebody's security and their property, you are really depriving them of their humanity. 
And I think, and, you know, hopefully we'll get into some of this throughout the discussion. Um, and it's really a big reason why we wrote the book, Cornerstone of Liberty, because anybody whose property, whether it be their business or their home or their way of life, you know, any anyone whose property has been threatened or damaged or destroyed either, you know, by a mob or by government realizes just how, how absurd this phrase, this people before property phrase is, because property is essential to safety, to peace, to self-expression, um, you know, the ability to own and enjoy property is really not only necessary to survive, but I would argue necessary to thrive. Um, so if your property rights aren't secure, then really none of your other rights are secure. And, and that's what we mean when we say cornerstone of liberty. That's that's how we titled the book, because the right to private property is the protector and the guarantor of all other rights, and we cannot be fully human and we cannot fully thrive without, without the right to property. So, so when you say people before property, you know, this is one of those bumper sticker slogans that sounds really great, but, um, but if we don't respect property and property rights, then, then we are by definition not respecting people. Okay, so you mentioned the riots, and this year we've seen in various cities some people loot shops, smash them up, and even burn them to the ground. Some people on the left have criticized this. Some people on the left have downplayed or even excused this sort of violence. So what are your reflections on that violence and some of the commentary surrounding it? Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 good to see that some people on the left have finally criticized it. Um, I think this is, again, one of those situations where property rights really does protect, they protect everyone and they especially protect the little guy, right? It's it's the wealthy and the well-connected people or the strong men. They can find ways to secure what's theirs uh, and they can also find ways to take that isn't. But it's a respect for property rights that really uh, respects the little guy, respects the, the small business owner, respects the person who has put their blood, sweat, and tears into earning something for themselves and earning um, a right to living and putting food on their family's table. Uh, that that's what's so important. We see that play out in the tragedy of these riots, uh, and and you know, frankly, this is also nothing new. What's been going on in in the book? We actually talk about a situation from early in the twentieth century, from the nineteen twenties. Uh, one a, a black doctor, um, his name was Doctor Sweet. He bought a house in Detroit for his family. And it was, of course, a racially charged time. He was moving into a neighborhood that was predominantly white. And as he moved in, and as was happening all across the neighborhood, as, as Black people moved into the neighborhood, there were these white mobs that tried to keep him away from the house. And, you know, they they would stand outside the home. And they, I mean, sometimes it'd be hundreds of people and they would yell and they would throw things and they would destroy property. They would loot and steal property. And the, the just awful thing is that the police did nothing. And even the mayor of Detroit <laughs> kind of just said, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should just discourage black people from moving into the neighborhood. We should just keep the peace. And so you have government abdicating its one responsibility, what it's supposed to be doing, which is respecting the rule of law and protecting people's rights, doing nothing. And so you know, Dr. Sweet, he got his friends and family together and um, and he defended himself as they moved into their home and he defended himself. He had a firearm with him uh, and, you know, violence ensued and um, a, a shot was fired and 
suddenly a white man across the street ended up being killed by a stray bullet. And so what did the police do? Well, they finally stepped in at that point and they arrested everybody uh, in Sweet's house. And so this, this went to trial. We kind of talk about this in the book. Um, it was a it was a really, really difficult trial because you had a very, very biased legal system uh, and, of course, a lot of prejudice against people, especially black people, owning firearms and defending themselves. But the NAACP got involved and the ACLU got involved. And what they argued is that, look, the right to self-defense or the right to not only protect yourself, but your home, your way of life, uh, it's critical to human freedom. And uh, the judge actually instructed the jury as such. And, and, you know, he said, he used that phrase that we hear, your home is your castle. A man's home is his castle. And told the jury that, you know, the right to self-defense includes not just one's person, but one's home. And so the jury found uh, uh, Sweet and his family not guilty. Now, the story's actually got a pretty sad ending because although he was found not guilty, um, you know, the family was jailed. Uh, His wife got very sick when she was in jail. She later passed away. And so the the repercussions of just sort of this abdication of the rule of law and respect for property rights, um, you know, are very serious. But I, I bring this case up because I think we're seeing sort of, you know, a replay of it today, although perhaps, um, you know, perhaps a flip of that. But it's, it's, it is a respect for property rights and a respect for the rule of law that protects people from mob rule, that protects people from racism, whether it be white racism or black racism or any anything in between. Um, and, 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 and really just is the great equalizer, right? It, it protects people, it allows people to live together, to get along together, to work together. And so what we're seeing today across the country, especially in bigger cities, is just a repeat of this, just an abdication of government, of its primary responsibility of protecting people's rights and keeping people safe. And, you know, the trickle-down effect is that it's just, I mean, it incites more frustration. It incites more violence because, of course, people who have worked so hard to buy homes for their families or to, you know, to run a business, especially during a pandemic, they're seeing their livelihoods, they're seeing their homes destroyed by this violence. And what do we hear? Well, the, the refrain we hear to justify it is this, well, People are more important than property and, you know, destruction to property. Well, those are only things. And and somehow this isn't true violence or truly threatening people or their way of life because it's only property. Well, one thing, one way I've heard it framed is that, look, compared to police suffocating George Floyd to death and like incidents like that, like police breaking into Breonna Taylor's home and Execute, killing her, I would say executing her, smashing out a store window does not rival that in importance. But I would say simply, well, yeah, one is worse than the other, but we should worry about both, especially in this context. If we're worried about African-Americans and their rights, a lot of this store violence and smashing of people's stores is minority-owned stores or stores where African-Americans are working. And a lot of these communities are going to be destabilized for years to come because they've been smashed up so much or damaged so much. And people tend not to invest in neighborhoods where they can't get a return on their investment because people keep breaking their stuff or stealing it all. Well, exactly. And and, and what the police did in those cases was, you know, is inexcusable, of course, just like it was inexcusable uh, when, you know, when they refused to 
to stand up and protect families like Dr. Sweets. Um, but I completely agree with you. And, and, the, and the truth of the matter is, too, because your home, because your business, because as we've been talking about, is so integral to who you are, um, it, it's kind of hard to divide the two. And so we oftentimes see, I mean, looting ha- has this horrible trickle-down effect, as you're describing, um, but also, you know, mob rule that is not that is not put down and is allowed to persist because it's, you know, not as bad as what the police did. Uh, it, it can oftentimes turn violent and threaten people's lives immediately, not even just in the long term, very quickly. So, um, you know, I think it, it, it's it's sort of like the old phrase, two wrongs don't make a right, right? And, and I, I think these comparisons are just, they're not helpful to anybody. The truth of the matter is that, you know, what the police did and why, and when people are peacefully protesting as they have every right to do and as they should do, you know, it's awful and it needs to change. Uh, but punishing innocent people, punishing people who are trying to earn a living, especially, as you say, many minority businesses, uh, it, it certainly doesn't make things any better. So let's shift a, a bit to the other big story of the year, the pandemic. And the federal government and some state governments have taken steps to restrict evictions at this point. And you talk about previous cases of various areas restricting evictions. What is wrong with that, especially in this context of this terrible pandemic? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, um, this is is happening in my own state as well. And and you know, you understand the motivation for it, right? Po- politicians they want they want to remove temporary pain, and the economy, which was very strong at the beginning of the year, has taken a nosedive uh, because of the pandemic. Some would say it has been heightened uh, because of government's reaction to the pandemic. But no matter what, uh, it, things, things are not in good shape. And so politicians, you know, I think, they, I think they write laws as if their pens can just overcome reality, right? As, it, as if they can just overcome the laws of economics, sort of like, it, it would be sort of like trying to legislate against gravity. But the truth of the matter is, there are always consequences uh, for these for these types of laws, and and again, the fact that they are allowed to stay on the books shows this lack of respect for for property and the right to voluntarily enter into contracts. So, as, as you mentioned, yes, in the book we talk about the history of this. I mean, you know, after World War One, a lot of cities across the country passed similar laws to this these anti eviction laws that would essentially allow tenants to stay in their homes or stay in the apart- their apartments, even if they weren't able to pay full rent. And, you know, the argument there was, well, as long as they're paying reasonable rent, as long as they're paying something to the landlord, we're going to let this go because there's a housing em- emergency. There's a shortage. People, you know, need to be able to have homes. So we're going to give them a break. Uh, of course, during the Great Depression, that's when re- we really saw this come out in full force. So we see people who um, were losing their jobs and losing their source of income during the Depression. And so states are passing these laws telling banks, no, they can't foreclose on on homes. And if people are defaulting on mortgages, you've got to let them stay in their homes. And this actually went to the Supreme Court uh, because the Constitution very plainly says that the government can't impair contractual obligations. It can't step in between two private parties uh, and and undo a contract, essentially. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, well... You know, that that may be what the Constitution says, but we have a living Constitution and it has to be interpreted for the times. And, and again, this is an emergency. Um, and so, you know, we're going to make an exception. And ever since then, uh, emergencies, however, which is however the government defines it, uh, have been used to justify 
you know, th- these types of laws. And, and again, it goes back to the consequences, though. Not only does our Constitution clearly prohibit government from doing this sort of thing, but think about it. Yeah, you know, allowing people to work or to live in properties when they can't pay the rent, maybe that helps the renters. And clearly that's what the politicians are thinking of when they pass these types of laws. But it hurts the landlords, right? If I'm if I own a property and I'm renting it out to a business or I'm renting it out to a homeowner, it's certainly not my fault that that those people are not able to pay their rent anymore. Maybe it's not their fault either, but it's not mine. And of course, I as a landlord, I also have a family to feed and bills to pay. And the way I do that is by collecting rent. And so, if we if we you know allow allow people to still stay in these properties, then we're hurting the landlords. And then, of course, the incentives that we're creating are awful, too. You mentioned before that people are less likely to invest in places where looting and rioting is is allowed to go on and there are no consequences. Well, why would anybody ever enter into a contract and make property available for rent if they know that the government might just come in and change the rules on them? They won't. Um, Or they will build into the price a security to... Uh, you know, just in case that happens, they'll jack the prices up, right? Rent will become more and more expensive because the risk to the landlord is a lot greater if the next time another pandemic rolls around or the economy takes a nosedive. We know that, that you know, the government's just going to pass laws that essentially nullify our contracts. So, um, you know, again, these this is one of many examples of well-intentioned laws, and, and I'm giving government the benefit of the doubt there, That, um, but that just are totally ignorant of reality and they're allowed to stand because we just have a lack of respect uh, in, in the legal system for private property rights. Well, just a personal note on that. I mean, my wife and I at various points have talked about maybe buying a property, a rental property for investment. And in fact, there's a house down the street from me right now that was that was a distressed property and there's weeds growing over the fence line, et cetera. But there's no way reading about these eviction freezes and reading about things like People can squat in a property and the police, the authorities won't do anything for months or even years on end while you fight, have to fight it out through the courts. And I just decided, you know, it's it's not worth the headache. I can't, you know, I can't, it would damage me severely financially if I dumped that kind of resources into a property and then if I wasn't able to collect rent on it. So I'm just, you know, I'm not going to do that. And there's a lot of people who I think are just deciding, you know, you have to, like you say, raise the price or go at it in a certain way where you have where you can ex- absorb some losses here and there. But people like me, it's just like it's just not worth a headache and it's not worth the risk. So no, you you raise a great point. You know, I do a lot of work uh, at the Goldwater Institute to protect people's rights to rent their homes out as short term rentals. Uh, and you know, cities across the country have made that illegal. And you talk about the incentives. There are so many properties out there. There's so many people that I've defended in court who purchased property that you know was vacant or or that that was actually condemned one guy he bought this house that had sat vacant for half a century and it, and it had actually ha- had been caved in it had a tree growing out of the middle of it um, because of a mudslide you know this was an eyesore and and the local government couldn't get rid of it because they didn't even have the tax revenue or they weren't spending it properly, you know, to be, to be able to just knock the thing down. So you've just got this, this eyesore uh, and this health hazard sitting in the middle of the city, but knowing that he'd be able to purchase this property and make the money back that he would have to spend on fixing it up, renting it out to people who, who wanted to visit this town. Um, 
incentivized him to do so. And, you know, and it's in this little historic mining town in Arizona called Jerome. And so he just restored it to its original historic condition. It actually made its way onto uh, in some historic Arizona uh, tourism magazines, just a beautiful place that never would have happened had he, you know, not had the right to be able to purchase the property and rent it out. And, and we ended up having to go to court because then the city kind of changed its mind. And after he had put all that money into it, decided that, nope, he could no longer rent the home out. Well, he wasn't living in it. He, he you know, he did all of that because he knew he'd be able to recuperate that investment and, and, and he could just visit on the weekends. And so ultimately we, we won when we went to court, but that was a big part of, you know, of the discussion is look at the incentives here. I mean, when people have property rights and they have the right to earn money on their property, they're incentivized to do things that have wonderful spillover benefits for the community uh, that they would never do if, if those rights were taken away. Well, and just on that note of short-term rentals, in Denver, this was some time ago, I don't remember the details, within the last couple of years, city officials were publicly shaming people for buying these, buying up properties for short-term rentals the wrong way and threatening them with criminal prosecution. And I thought, wow, that's pretty heavy-handed for people who are just, you know, trying to trying to earn a living by restoring and renting out properties. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, turning people and it's in, you know, it's not just Denver. I mean, this is happening across the country. And, and the amazing thing about it is, yeah, you are literally turning good people investing in communities into criminals, simply because they're purchasing and improving on property. It, it is it, none of these laws, these laws usually have nothing to do with any nuisances that are occurring on the property. And, and, you know, again, this is this you could do a whole podcast just on this issue. But um, a lot of times when you look at it, nuisances are less likely to occur in short term rentals and the properties are actually more likely to be kept up because they have to entice people who are on vacation. But even that aside, you know, if people are are really concerned about nuisances or parties or things like that, then, you know, you pass laws that that go after those things that make sure there aren't traffic problems or trash problems or noise problems, just like we would in any other uh, situation in a neighborhood. But when you, when you just say, well, no, we just, we don't, we think there are proper uses for your property and improper uses. And you can't, you can buy this property if you live in it, but if you have a guest pay you money to stay overnight in your home, then suddenly you're a criminal. Uh, You know, it's just, it's outrageous. And again, it really disincentivizes people from wanting to invest in communities. Well, we're shifting now more into the con- the contents of the book. So let me, I want to set up an historical question, though, to move into that, into that content. So you're dealing in the book more with the last, say, half century into this century and issues in that realm. Though, as you mentioned, you talk about some cases from previous times. But I just want to emphasize, and you talk about some of this in the book, that violations of property rights in the United States are hardly new. So the Native Americans, whom you do mention in the book, much of their property was stolen, often in violation of treaty. Um, slavery, of course, denied even the basic right of self-ownership. And of course, everything they produced, quote, belonged to their so-called masters. There's a case in Denver in 1880 when a white mob destroyed businesses in the Chinatown of the time and murdered a man. California, you discuss this in the book, in the 1800s and early 1900s, forbade people 
from China and Japan from owning property, either directly or through indirect means. There was the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, where what was known as the Black Wall Street was just decimated and dozens of people were murdered by these white mobs. You mentioned the case of Ocean Suite in 1925. You also discussed the urban renewal projects in the 60s and 70s to evict largely what the effect was to evict poor and minority residents. So a lot of this stuff is not happening any, anymore, thank goodness. Um, we have other problems. I just was curious, how would you describe the overall tendency? I mean, we made some huge, huge advances, abolishing slavery. Um, people are no longer, there's no longer white mobs driving black people out of their homes. So how would you, what's the, how should we look at the overall trends? And that goes, you know, what is, to, is today the glass, gla- how full is the glass and have we bent the arc toward justice um, to a great extent, or how, how do you rate sort of the the timeline? Sure. Well, you know, I am I am by nature a glass half full person because I my job is to sue the government every single day, and so which is <laughs> which is one of those jobs that I think if you were a glass half empty sort of person, it would be uh, very discouraging. Uh, and 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 hard to continue to do that from day to day. But but I actually I do have a lot of faith in in Americans and in the American dream. Um, what's interesting is what you've described is is what we describe in the book, and it's very accurate. But but actually, if you go back to the founding, I mean, our our country, we are the only country in the history of humanity that was founded on fundamental rights, right? The, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, property, the right, the right to own oneself and own one's property. That is integral to our Declaration of Independence. It is written into our Constitution. Property rights are mentioned in one form or another in our Constitution more than any other right. Um, they are the foundation of all other rights, as I mentioned. And so, so we, you know, we, we have this nation that is really founded on the idea that private property rights are a are the critical ingredient in human freedom and and they guarantee all other rights. And so what we really have see though is I mean we ha- we have this declaration and then as you've said ever since then we've basically seen a chipping away at at that right. Um and this really did I think this really did rise and and become more prevalent during the progressive era, right? The earlier parts of early to mid parts of the 20th century, we see this viewpoint shift away from the viewpoint of our founding fathers. So a a property owner is no longer presumed to have a right to own property or a right to their land. Uh, Instead, we, we have to ask permission from government. So the assumption is that rights are no longer respected for the good of the individual, but but they're respected only when they benefit society. Now, there's some good to this because, as you've mentioned, we've made a lot of progress. Um, we we have more or less done away with mob rule. We have um, you know we've made incredible progress in eradicating slavery and um, and things like that. But but you know the, those things have changed because society has changed and because we see the good for society. But other, but other things, as you've mentioned, have actually gotten worse because ultimately who decides whether or not you should be entitled to a right, you should, you should get permission to use your property or own your property as you see fit, uh, who makes that determination? Well, it's, it's government. If, if, if it's not an essential, fundamental, immutable right, but it is a right that depends on the whims of society, ultimately it's up to whatever bureaucrat 
is in charge. And so, you know, we've seen, we've just seen vast expansions in the government's power um, to take property, you know, through eminent domain, to regulate property, uh, and really to even just go beyond what's necessary to protect health and safety. I mean, even health and safety can be very, very stretched and distorted if that's if that definition is malleable and it's in the eyes of the bureaucrat. But now, I mean, we don't even see bureaucrats pretend that a lot of these regulations are about health and safety. They, they claim, you know, that they can regulate just for aesthetic purposes. And you mentioned, um, you know, the racial impact zoning itself, zoning, something that we all take for granted, right? That, that the government in most areas in the country can tell you, you know, what kind, how you can use your property in certain areas of a municipality. Well, zoning has its origins uh, in, in communities deciding who is desirable and who is not and using the force of law to keep certain undesirables out. And of course, back when zoning was really created, it was a tool that was created in the South to keep black people out of white neighborhoods. And I think most people just don't even realize that. Now, whatever benefits one might see to zoning um, outside of that, which, which is obviously awful, awful origins, we've gotten, as you said, we've mostly gotten rid of that in practice, or at least on paper, right? It's no longer legal to, to exclude people who are of certain minorities uh, from neighborhoods, but the practical effect of zoning remains because when we tell people that they can't build property in a certain way, right? We tell people, well, you can only have a single family home here. You can't have a duplex or you can't have an apartment building. What we're doing is we're telling people that there's only essentially one desirable way to live and people who might not be able to afford a big single family home with a big backyard uh, or people who, you know, m- might be immigrant families who have brought their families over and they all need to live under one roof, or people who need to start living in apartments, people who want to enjoy the American dream in their own way are essentially told that, you know, they're kept out of certain neighborhoods because they're seen as undesirable. People who want to rent their property out, like we said, as a short-term rental, nope, visitors are undesirable. Only long-term families that, you know, that meet our, our certain aesthetic preferences. And so even though we have by law, or at least, um, you know, explicitly done away with, um, with these types of laws, they still linger. And, and again, I think that's because we see, we have a lack of respect or a lack of understanding for how the right to use one's property affects people and how it affects uh, racial disparity and economic disparity and how it really holds people back from pursuing the American dream. Now, that sounds like a very bleak um, outlook, but I actually, I do feel optimistic. And that is because I think in recent years, we've seen illustrations. We've so, People have sort of woken up at least a little bit uh, to how private property is, is an important right? It's an important tool that can be used to, to protect people. And that really is, is more important to protecting, again, the little guy or the minority than it is um, for the wealthy or the well-connected. And I think uh, the greatest example of that, and, and this is why we wrote this book, um, was, was the Kilo versus New London case. So I, I think probably, you know, most of your listeners are probably familiar with that case, but um, but this is a case where Suzette Kilo, you know, and what what I really love about the Kilo case, I, I will say, is that 
it is, it's a beautiful illustration of just how important private property is. So you have this woman, Suzette Kilo. She was in an unhappy marriage for a good portion of her life. She stayed around until her kids became adults, moved out of the house. And then she decided, you know, I, I want something for me. I want to live my life. So she divorced her husband. She got a job. Um, she she saved up money. And, you know, of course, she couldn't afford anything, uh, you know, a, a really fancy big home. But she found a house in the uh, Fort uh, Trumbull neighborhood of New London, Connecticut, this tiny little kind of rundown house in a lower middle class neighborhood. And But she could afford it and she bought it. And that was something that she earned for herself and nobody else gave her the money. She, she earned it herself. And so she felt like nobody else could take it away from her. And she she built the, I mean, she fixed that house up and she made it her own. And it was known as sort of the little pink house because she, she painted it pink and all her, and her neighbors, it was, it was a beautiful story of an investment in, in a community because her neighbors helped her. In fact, one of the neighbors she ended up later marrying, uh, and they helped her fix up the house. And, and if you look at the before and after pictures, it's beautiful and it's heartwarming because it wasn't just a house for her, right? That that represented her struggles and her ability to create something that was her own and, and to do so with the community. And then what happens? Well, the state of Connecticut comes in and they decided that, you know, these this lower middle class neighborhood would be a lot better for the government and for the state if it was wiped out and replaced with a redevelopment project that would bring a big company in and we could have fancy high rises and nice restaurants and, and that would just be a lot more desirable and, and attractive. And so, uh, and tax generating and tax generating. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so, you know, the, the, the bureaucrats went to the people in the neighborhood and they said, uh, we would, you know, we want your property and the people did not want to sell. They said, and you know, Suzette Kilo didn't want to sell her property. She said, you can't put a number, you can't put a, a, a market value on what this property means to me. This is, this is so integral to who I am and so important to me. And I'll never be able to purchase because, of course, the value of the property on the market wasn't much. And, and I'll never be able to purchase something else in a neighborhood like this where I have a view of the water and I have this community. And so what did the government do? Well, they said, well, we're just going to go take it then. We're going to use our eminent domain power. Now, the Constitution does give the government the power to take people's private property, but it's limited power. It says that it has to be for a public use. And then, of course, the government has to pay people just compensation. Well, public use, you know, that, that, that definition can mean a lot of things. And we think about what is a public use. Well, maybe a post office or a military base or a road or a park. But the one thing we know it's not is a private use. Uh, and taking away somebody's private property to give it to a private redevelopment project to entice a big business. And in, in, in this um, example, uh, in this instance, they were courting the Pfizer Corporation, who interestingly enough did not want to locate, had, had no reason to locate to New London, Connecticut. That wasn't even on the, on the corporation's um, map. So the government said, well, what if we just take this property? <laughs> what if we just take it and we level it and we give it to you? Um, and so, uh, so anyway, I, I think most people were just kind of shocked by that because if we, if we know one thing about what public use means, we know it doesn't mean private. And so our friends at the Institute for Justice went to court to defend the rights of Suzette Kilo and her neighbors against this taking. And 
you know, it's funny because I started this story by saying that that this story gives me hope. Um, some people who know the outcome might be surprised to hear that because, uh, of course, uh, Suzette and her neighbors lost in court. It was a very close decision, but the United States Supreme Court rubber stamped uh, the decision of the bureaucrats to take these properties. And they said, well, you know, public use can just means a public purpose. And as you mentioned, we know we're going to get more tax revenue if we bring big companies in and uh, we'll create jobs. And so that's that's good enough for a public. That's good enough for a public use. Now, of course, if that's good enough for a public use, then that means nobody's property is secure, right? Because there's always um, a, a use that will create generate big, more tax revenue, and that means that every lower middle class, every every inner city neighborhood um, is you know, subject to government coming in, taking the property, leveling it and saying, well, if we have a big business in here, then it'll generate more tax revenue or it'll create more jobs. And that is really government just making the decision as to what is desirable and what is not desirable. And so the reason I see this as a positive is that as awful as the outcome of that case was, that really woke people up. Um, and, And although property rights had had in recent years been been more respected maybe by folks on the right. Um, this became a real, there was a real bipartisan outcry to do something about this because people realized that, you know, that property rights really are in place to protect the rights of people like Suzette Kilo and that, you know, companies like Pfizer, well, they have wealth and connections that they can use to get what they want, but it's people like Suzette Kilo who need the constitution and need private property rights to protect them. So even though the court got it wrong, uh, even though the federal government failed to fix it, uh, almost every single state in the country in the years since Kilo stepped up and passed stronger eminent domain laws, either in their constitution or in their statutes that said, no, public use actually means public use. And you can't take away people's property to give it away to a private business or to give it away to a project that a bureaucrat thinks is more desirable. And um, so I so I, I think, you know, I think we have a long way to go. Uh, I think that was just one one illustration. Um, but the the part of the story that I don't think most people know is that is, is sort of what happened in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision. And if you go to the Fort Trumbull neighborhood of New London, Connecticut, or if you do so on Google Maps or Google Earth or whatever, you can actually tour that neighborhood and you don't see Pfizer Corporation there, and you don't see high-rises, and you don't see restaurants and fancy hotels. What you see is essentially something that looks like a wasteland or a landfill, um, because the government did take those properties and did level those properties. And then even after all that, even after stealing people's property and offering subsidies and taxpayer dollars, it still didn't make sense for Pfizer to locate in that neighborhood. And ultimately, Pfizer didn't locate there. And so this just shows you even more so <laughs> that bureaucrats at these top-down decisions, um, you know, bureaucrats can't know what makes the most sense for a neighborhood or for an economy. And, um, and so I think it's just, it's a really strong reminder of the importance of private property rights, of the importance of protecting private property rights. Um, and the fact that, you know, when private property rights are protected and respected, then the right decisions are made. And as a side note on that case, there's a nice film portraying the events called Little Pink House. And I thought it was pretty well made. 
um, for an independent film. Yeah, it's a good film, and it's you know it's based on a book. I, I believe the author is Jeff Benedict, um, and and he wrote a fantastic book. So I I actually recommend both. In fact, when people ask me why I do the work that I do, I oftentimes give them that book uh, because again, I think it tells a story even more intimately and beautifully than than we could cover in just the few minutes that we have here. But in, and it really just illustrates how important private property is to human well-being and human flourishing. Is the book called Little Pink House too? It is, yeah. Okay. So we've talked about eminent domain, which is a big ta- big subject of your book. You've mentioned briefly zoning and the short-term rental restrictions. But I wanted to kind of go through the main categories. So eminent domain is a huge category, which is the government taking your property for a so-called public use, however we want to define that. Another topic which we haven't discussed yet, and we'll discuss it. We have there's some cases we can discuss, is asset forfeiture, where government takes your property because it has some relationship to some crime, whether or not you committed a crime. If the property is involved in a crime, government can sometimes take it. Then there are building permits and limits on that, and governments using this permitting process is basically a means to extort property owners into doing what the bureaucrats want. Um, then there's another big topic, which are regulatory takings, which you also discuss in the book. And uh, something you don't discuss in the book, but which I will add, is home invasions for nonviolent crimes yes. and police destruction of property. And I mentioned that because just this morning I read a case where in my city of Westminster, Colorado, Homeland Security, in conjunction with the local police, raided this couple's townhome, supposedly on a drug raid, um, destroyed the property, dragged this woman around naked on the floor in handcuffs. Um, details are still coming in on that, but as far as I can tell, this was totally unjustifiable and unjustified. And for some people, I mean, government isn't often taking what, well, I guess if they, if they, they can take your house through asset forfeiture, but even if they don't take your house, if they destroy your house, we've had a couple of cases where police just destroyed a house, either looking for a suspect or some other reason. I think there, I think both the cases I have in mind were looking for a suspect. And then they just destroy the house and they're like, oh, well, too bad. Yeah, put it back together. Uh, and, yeah, and they and there's no effort to, to make that right. And, uh, you know, so those are also, they aren't as widespread of problems, but if you're, if you're the person whose house is blown, literally blown up by the police, that's a big deal. You know, all the things that you um, just mentioned, I mean, the, the regulations, the regulatory takings, the permitting issues, the civil asset forfeiture, the, you know, breaking into people's homes and ripping them apart, even if they don't rip them apart, I mean, invading your home, your private space, right? I mean, all of those things, you know, for whatever we say about eminent domain and clearly the way that the Supreme Court has construed eminent domain, it, it is just widely abused, um, at least when the government takes your property through eminent domain, it has to pay you. Now, it's not paying you what it's actually worth to you, because if that were the case, you would have sold it uh, on the market. Uh, but at least it has to pay you, right? And and <laughs> at least it then takes the home and takes the property, it gives you money, and then you're no longer liable for, uh, you know, you don't have to pay the mortgage anymore. You're not liable for the insurance, um, whatever else. Everything else you're describing, I mean, that's what's so insidious about it is that 
when the government regulates away your right to use your property uh, or when it requires you to to ask for permission and, and to pay or to give something up in order to get permission to use your property or when it takes your property away through asset forfeiture or when they burst into your house and destroy your things. Um, most of the time, government has no obligation under the law to do anything to make you whole, as you say. And so is is awful and, and insidious as eminent domain is, gosh, at the very at least there's some sort of compensation for what the government has done. And and so as, as happy as I am to see the broad eminent domain reform that has been instituted across the country at the state level, uh, I think you're absolutely right to bring up these other areas because these are areas that absolutely that cry out for reform because these are very egregious violations of people's property rights that go totally uncompensated. Well, let's talk about this asset forfeiture case, I believe in Arizona, of Kevin McBride. Uh, yes. And wasn't your organization involved in that? Yes. So Kevin McBride, gosh, this is, you know, the, the Kevin McBride's story is so upsetting, but he is one of just countless people who go through this really on a daily basis. So uh, Kevin McBride, he lives in Tucson. He's a handyman. And so he makes a living going to people's homes and doing projects for them, fixing their homes. And his girlfriend decided that she wanted to take his Jeep. He uses his Jeep to get around to his to his jobs. But she said, and take your Jeep to the local convenience store. She actually said she was going to go buy him a soda. And in fact, what she was going to do um, was to sell marijuana. Um, she was arrested at the convenience store for selling marijuana or attempting to sell marijuana to an undercover police officer. Now, we're talking about $25 worth of marijuana. So uh, very, very, very small potatoes. The fact that they even sent out an undercover police officer, you think about the amount of tax money <laughs> that's being used to and taking up that officer's time doing that. Um, probably not worth the $25 of marijuana. And in fact, uh, the police never actually, um, they dropped the charges against her, never actually charged or convicted anybody of a crime. But what they did do is take the Jeep. Now, the Jeep was not the girlfriend's Jeep. The Jeep was Kevin's. And it and it didn't contain any evidence or anything like that. Um, in fact, what's interesting is that when the officer went to meet Kevin's girlfriend, they had a tow truck around the corner because they knew she'd be coming with a car. And so it's, it's, it's like they didn't even know what was going to ensue, but they were just waiting to take, to take this vehicle, right? So they take the Jeep. Uh, as I said, charges against the girlfriend were dropped. So no crime whatsoever. Of course, Kevin wasn't involved, charged with or involved in any kind of crime. Uh, and then the police didn't give the car back. And in fact, when he inquired about it, the police told Kevin um, that they would not give his car back unless he paid them $1,900. $1,900. Now, in the meantime, he doesn't have his Jeep. Kevin's a handyman. His livelihood depends on his ability to get around to people's homes to complete projects. He has no mo mode of transportation. Um, the, the police have taken his mode of transportation, not charging anybody with a crime. And then they've essentially held it for ransom. Now, why $1,900? Why not? I, I don't, I don't know. They've never, they never justified it. They never explained why he'd have to pay that kind of money or why at that amount. Uh, and of course, most people, people like Kevin, who are, you know, working for a living, most people don't have $1,900 just lying around to, to pay the government's extortion bills to get their property back when they did nothing wrong. 
so um, we, the Goldwater Institute, yeah, we took up the case. Um, we didn't even have to, believe it or not, we didn't even have to actually file the lawsuit in court. We sent a letter, as we often do, to the police station, and we said, what you're doing is unconstitutional. You cannot just take somebody's property without charging them, without convicting them or even charging them of a crime. Um, you have not charged uh, Kevin with a crime. You have not given any reason as to why you need to have this Jeep or why he should have to pay $1,900 in order to get it back. And we're going to sue you. Um, and the police backed down and they said, okay, he can have his car back. And they give him his Jeep back. Now, What's, I think, shocking about that situation is, you know, Kevin, of course, would have never been able to afford an attorney. He couldn't even afford to pay the $1,900 to get his Jeep back. He certainly wouldn't have been able to afford an attorney to go to court or to threaten to go to court. Um, The Goldwater Institute, you know, we do this pro bono. Um, But imagine for every Kevin out there, there are there are countless other people who have their property seized by government and and do nothing and can't do anything because they don't have the means to to go to court and defend themselves and that's because of these asset forfeiture laws many states across the country have these civil asset forfeiture laws on the books and they allow police to not only take but keep people's private property if they suspect that it was involved in criminal activity and again who had you know what what does that mean that they suspect it was involved in a crime well it's, you know, all the police have to do is say that they suspect it and that's good enough. They don't have to convict you of a crime to take or keep the property. And in some states like Arizona, they don't even have to charge you with a crime or charge anyone with a crime. Again, in Kevin's case, the alleged crime that even took place, the selling of $25 worth of marijuana, well, he had nothing to do with it. He wasn't even there and it wasn't his marijuana. Um, And then if you want your property back again, you have to hire a lawyer, you have to go to court, and you bear the burden of proving that there was no crime. So it's just crazy. All the burdens of proof are just totally flipped on their head. Now, (laughs) when I explain this to people, they ask, why do we even have laws like this on the books? And it's a really good question. But the point of asset forfeiture, I mean, these laws were created to target the property of major criminals, right? Like drug kingpins and things like that. Um, and nowadays they're used for the exact opposite purpose. Uh, They're used to target the little guy and they hurt the little guy because it's, again, the little guy who can't afford a means to defend himself. And the incentives are totally skewed because usually government gets to keep the proceeds. Actually, it, it usually goes to the police station themselves instead of just the general fund at large. So you can imagine these police are incentivized. They, they, they don't get in trouble at all if they take property and then they don't end up convicting or charging anyone of a crime. But yet, if they take the property and people don't pay the ransom to go get it back or they can't afford a lawyer to go to court to get it back, they get to sell it at auction and that money, the proceeds from taking that property goes to the police station. So there's every incentive to take people's property. And, I, and I'm sure that's why there is a tow truck just waiting uh, at the convenience store when Kevin's girlfriend dr- pulled up. They, they're just, they're waiting to take the assets. And I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars are forfeited each year. So our, our argument, I mean, we have a whole project to protect people against civil asset forfeiture. Ultimately, we want legislatures uh, to to step up and outlaw this practice, but we argue that this is totally unconstitutional. The burden has to be on the government to prove that the owner of the property was involved in a crime. And if they can't prove that, then they need to get the property back. 
Well, the legitimate principle here is that people should not be able to keep ill-gotten gains. But clearly, that's not what's going on in this case of Kevin McBride. And it's just, it's hard for me to believe that in 21st century America, the police can act like a mafia gang and steal people's property. If I did that, I would be in, if I took Kevin McBride's Jeep like that, I would be in prison. You'd be in jail, and rightly so. I would be in prison. And so there are obviously, we still live in a class system. And there are obviously two sets of books on, two sets of laws on the books in practice. One set for the police and one set for me. Because if I treated people like the police treated Kevin McBride, I would be in prison. That's all there is to it. No question about it. And I just, it's just, when I think about just that fact, those basic facts. I just oh, it's even it's hard for me to believe, and it, it, it's just outrageous. It's and even I, worse it's, than that, because if if you treated people like the police treated Kevin, you'd be in jail. When the police do it, they get financial rewards. You know, I mean, this again, and this this we happen to find out about this case, and that's another thing too is people don't know where to go. I mean, they they don't know if they don't find someone, or if we don't find them, you know, someone like the Goldwater Institute, the Institute for Justice, or the Pacific Legal Foundation, these groups that that do this this free legal work to defend people's rights. I mean, you know, they don't know where to go and they don't have the money to be able to pay a lawyer. Uh, And a lot of circumstances, it's not even worth it, right? When you think about uh, some of these assets that are seized, you know, cars are a common one. Somebody's car is taken. Sometimes these cars are only worth a couple thousand dollars. Now that's everything to somebody who has to use that as a means of transportation and can't afford to replace it. But if you have to go to court, and you have to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars just to, just to be able to walk into the courtroom even without a lawyer. Um, it, you know, even even if you could find that money somewhere, it's it's not even worth it to do it. Uh, and if if there is, I mean, what's even worse is if anybody that you know or anybody connected with the property was connected to a crime, even if you weren't. Um, you know, you go into court to get that property back. Well, now you're you're in civil court. You're not operating under criminal law. And so you don't have a constitutional protection against self-incrimination. And anything that you say to try to get that property back can be used against you or used against somebody else. Um, and so it's just, it is a system that is just totally stacked against the innocent property owner um, and totally incentivizes the government to go out there and act like a mob, act like a bunch of crime bosses. And and it just, you know, again, I mean, we're, we're trying to take these cases one by one to highlight these stories. But the fact that it was so easy for us to get Kevin's property back, we didn't even have to fight in court, just shows you how wrong this is. And, the, and it's to me, it's a tacit admission on behalf of the police that they know that this is wrong. Because they didn't go to court and defend their actions when they knew that there were actually lawyers interested in it. They, you know, and they didn't want the publicity. They just wanted it to go away. So how often is this happening every single day to innocent people and we don't ever hear about it? Well, let's talk about the problem of abuse of permits with the Koi Kuntz case. Yes, yes. So this is, there is a principle a legal principle called the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions. And essentially the Supreme court has said um, throughout a series of cases that, uh, that came about during the 20th century, the Supreme court has said, look, if you have to go to 
get permission from government to be able to do something, to be able to use your property or develop your property in a certain way. Government can require something of you if you are going to, you know, if they want to mitigate a harm, say. So, for example, this happens a lot when you talk about property development. When you have property, piece of empty property, a developer comes on and, you know, they, they want to build a subdivision. Well, maybe that will cause an extra strain on, you know, the sewer system or the water system, or, or maybe it will bring extra traffic to the area. So the roads need to be widened. So essentially, the court has said, look, if you seek a permit and the government says, well, if we, you know, if we allow you to develop that property, it, it's going to require widening the road or it's going to require putting in extra sewers or whatever. They, they can require you to do that. Um, but what they can't do is impose conditions that aren't at all related to any harm that you might cause uh, or that aren't proportional in value to what you want to do. So so if you, you know, if you want to build that subdivision, they can make you widen the road right in front of that property, but but they can't make you put in a new freeway because that doesn't make any sense. It's not related, uh, and that's much more expensive than any small harm that you might be causing. Otherwise, I mean, it's essentially extortion. If the government tries to get you uh, to do something or to pay a bunch of money uh, in order to get permission to use your own property, then it's extortion. So, so that's, that's, that's the law. That's been the law for some time now. Uh, but essentially what in the Coons case, what happened is government officials are saying, okay, well, that only, that law only applies when the government forces property owners to give up land, uh, or, or to do something, but it, it doesn't apply when government just asks for money in exchange for a permit, which is actually quite laughable if you think about it. So they're saying, well, it's, it's okay to ask somebody to, you know, to give up some land or, or to, to develop some, uh, you know, to fix something up. But, uh, but no, if the government just flat out asks you for cash, which is, is really literal extortion, then that's no problem. That's not protected by the Constitution. And that's what happened in the Kuntz case. In the Kuntz case, um, Koi Kuntz was a Florida developer, and he wanted to develop land that he had owned for decades. He had owned it for over 30 years. And again, as we were talking about before, this, that's great, right? It's great when people are incentivized to improve on their land. Uh, it's good for everybody in the area. It's good for property values. And he wanted to develop the land. And so uh, these Florida officials, first they told him, okay, you have to set aside 11 acres of your property as a nature preserve. And if you do that, we'll allow you to develop the remaining, I think it was four acres. So in other words, just, just off the bat, most of your property that you want to develop, you have to just leave, just as it is. You can't do anything with it. And then, and then we will give you permission to develop the remaining couple of acres of your property if you pay us $200,000. What are we going to do with that $200,000? Well, we're going to fix some, uh, some, some drainage culverts. And you might think, okay, well, if, if his property development is going to require that, then that's understandable. No, no, no. We're going to take that $200,000 and we're going to use it uh, to, to do that four miles away on government property, four miles away from the property that you want to develop. So um, <laughs> that is literally uh, extortion. The, right, the government is saying, you no longer, we're going to take your property rights. We're going to take your right to develop in your property as you see fit away from you, and we will sell it back to you for $200,000. That is what the, these Florida bureaucrats were saying. So Koi Kuntz went to court. Um, our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation took this case to court. What is so sad, what is so heartbreaking about a lot of these cases is just how hard and how long people have to fight in court 
just for the their right to use their property. Um, Coons, this case actually went on for a, over a decade. Um, and the really sad thing is Koi Coons actually died while the case was going on. He died waiting for justice. His family continued to bring the case after he passed away. And finally, case went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And thankfully, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. Uh, and, and they said, which really it shouldn't take an army of lawyers and a decade of court uh, fighting in court to, to come to this conclusion. But they said, look, there's no difference between forcing a property owner to give up land and forcing them to give up cash. Uh, either way, it's extortion. Either way, you're forcing, you're taking people's rights away and you're selling them back to them in the form of permits. And that is not constitutional. You can require people to mitigate harms if they are, if, if using their property would have some negative spillover effects and, and harm people, but you cannot sell their rights back to them um, in this manner. And so, you know, it's a, it's a great, it was a great decision, but it really is remarkable that when you think about it, I mean, that, that decision came down, what, seven years ago? So you had this man dying, fighting in court for over a decade, and it took it it took us into 2013 for the United States Supreme Court to tell bureaucrats that, you know, extortion is illegal. Well, I guess the good news is at least the legal process is possible. It's not just like the strong men are just taking your stuff and that's too bad. Live with it. And uh, at least. there is still some some respect for the Constitution in this country and in our court system. So I guess as maddening as angering as it is, I guess at least there's a bright side or silver lining to it. Yes, and it is really why, and, I, and this is a little bit of a shameless plug here, but it's, it's why it's so important that organizations like the Goldwater Institute, like the Pacific Legal Foundation, like the Institute for Justice exist, because again, I, I mean, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have made economic sense or probably even been economically possible for Koi Kuntz and his family to spend the astronomical amount of money that it costs to fight the government in court for a decade, you know, to come to that conclusion. But now, thankfully, because of, because of organizations like ours that go to court and fight for this, now we've set precedent, right? Now the Supreme Court has said once and for all, this is illegal, and now nobody else will have to go through that. Let's take one more big topic here with regulatory takings. And here, one interesting case is the Chantel and Michael Sackett case. And then this leads into an issue with a reform in Arizona with your property rights protection measure, which was, I think, 2006? Yes. And so what does this deal with regulatory takings and then how in Arizona did you attempt to deal with that and related problems? Yeah. So, you know, earlier again, we were talking about eminent domain and as awful as it is, we were saying, well, at least when the government takes your property through eminent domain, it has to pay you. A regulatory taking is when the government takes away your right to use your property or to improve on your property or to sell it. So your right to do something with your property but doesn't completely take title to the land, doesn't completely take the property away. And so you, you have this situation where a property right that you had before is taken away. And under most circumstances, the government doesn't have to pay you at all for taking away that, that property right. And it's even worse than that. They don't have to compensate you for what they did. But on top of it, you're now stuck with 
you know, if it's a home, you're still stuck with the mortgage, although the property is probably worth less since the government took away your right to to use it as you see fit. Uh, You're you're stuck with the liability. Uh, If somebody, you know, slips and falls at your house or whatever else, you still have the insurance liability. Um, If you go to sell the property, again, it's probably not going to be as valuable as it was before. And yet the government, in most circumstances, just doesn't have to compensate you for that. So uh, regulatory takings, I think, um, are much worse in some ways than eminent domain because they occur kind of under the surface. Um, it's, it's not as obvious as when the government actually just comes in and takes somebody's property outright. Um, but again, in, mo- in most cases, they go uncompensated. So the, the Sackett case um, dealt dealt with one aspect of this. And really, the Sackett case isn't just a regulatory takings case. It's, it's a case that established your right to have your day in court when the government commits a regulatory taking. We were talking about just, just how the process itself to defend your private property. I think that's a common theme through a lot of these cases. It's, just, it's not just the, how egregious it is that the government can take your property away, uh, but, but that it, the process is so burdensome to be able to try to get that property back or to get justice that most people can't do anything about it. So the Sacketts, they were building a home in Idaho on some property that they owned, and they started building. And the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, came in and said, nope, you got to stop. You got to stop building um, your home. You have to restore the property to its natural state because you're building on a wetland. And if you don't stop, by the way, Every single day, we will find you $75,000, $75,000 a day for every day that, that you don't stop construction and, and return the property to its natural state. Now, the Sackets were kind of surprised, um, and they, they said, well, we're, our land is dry, first of all, so it, I, we don't understand how you're even calling this a wetland. The bureaucrats that sent them this cease and desist letter hadn't even been to their land, so um, you know, they they don't understand how it's being deemed a wetland. And their neighbors had who were on the same type of land had just built a home. So the Sackett said, look, we, we want the opportunity to be able to challenge this. These The EPA clearly got this wrong. And we want the opportunity to be able to be heard and to and and to prove that, the, you know, to show that, in fact, this isn't a wetland. We want the opportunity to be able to improve our property. By the way, especially since you are telling us that we're going to be subject to fines of $75,000 a day if we don't comply. Shockingly, I mean, most people would assume that you could go challenge that in court. Shockingly, uh, they were not entitled to a hearing. The EPA said, no, no, this this is just a cease and desist letter, but we're not enforcing it yet. Um, So you cannot, you're not entitled to a hearing. You have to wait until we sue you. And then once we sue you, then you can make your argument that this isn't a wetland. But by the way, all those days in the interim, but between when we sent this letter and when we decide to sue you, we're still going to rack up that $75,000 a day fine. And so then whenever we decide to go into court, if you're not successful, then we'll send you that bill. Uh, it's just, it's crazy. So uh, the Sackets went to court um, anyway, and they argued that that whole process was unconstitutional. They said, look, if if the government is going to take your property rights away through regulation, and by the way, telling somebody that they can't develop on their property at all is basically almost like completely taking the property away, right? I mean, it's 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 one of those things that 
we call a total takings in the law. You have this property and you're essentially told, well, you just, it's worthless now because you can't do anything with it. They bought it to put a home on it and the government's saying you can't do anything with it. So uh, so they, they went to court to argue that, look, if the government's going to take away our property rights, due process says that we at least have a right to be able to have our day in court to argue that the government's wrong and that it shouldn't be able to take our property away from us. So this went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, which this is this is actually a great outcome. It, the court ruled unanimously in their favor. So this was, I think it was 2012, uh, unanimously. So just across the board, ruled in their favor and said, <laughs> you know, this is just a, that, that having your day in court is necessary for due process. It's necessary for the protection of private property. Uh, so, it was, I mean, it, it, in some ways, it was a very, very good ruling that nobody on the court thought that it was okay or constitutional for the government to take away your property rights and then not let you go to court to defend yourself. But um, in, in other ways, if you think about it, what did they win after fighting all the way up to the United States Supreme Court? Well, they went through all of that to win their right to make their argument in court. So it's not that they even won their right to use their property. They just won the right to be able to go to court to make the argument all over again, which again is a big check on government power because it tells the government they can't just get away with, um, you know, with regulating people's property rights out of existence without consequence. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the, that, so that, that case was continuing and earlier this year, the EPA actually withdrew its compliance order. So the EPA actually said, okay, you know, we're, we're no longer going to tell you that you can't develop on your property. Now, as government typically does, it wasn't clear as to whether the EPA thought that it could reinstate this compliance order at a later date. So um, a lot of times these cases require diligence and follow-up. But, um, but again, a, a, very, a very important ruling uh, and, and very important in telling that it was unanimous because even in, in an era where private property rights have, I would argue, been relegated to second-class rights and ha have not traditionally uh, been protected to the extent that other rights have been protected, even though they are the foundation of all other rights, here you have a court, the court unanimously standing up and saying, no, government cannot take away private property rights without at least giving people their right to defend themselves in court. My understanding is the Arizona reform deals primarily or exclusively with regulatory takings. So explain how that works and what, what the impact has been. Well, I had mentioned earlier that after the Kelo case, states across the country, just about every single state, stepped up to reform their state eminent domain laws. Now, this is important because most instances of T takings of property rights, at least through eminent domain, really does occur on the state or local level. Um, so that does fix the problem largely. And, and what states did in Arizona did this as well is they said, look, you know, you can't take a you can't take private property for a private use. It has to be a truly public use. Arizona went a step further, though, um, and the Goldwater Institute was intimately involved in developing this law. I think the fact that Arizona has adopted it makes Arizona the strongest state in the nation for protecting property rights, um, it extended the principle to regulatory takings. So because it should be the same, right? So essentially the, the Private Property Rights Protection Act in Arizona says whenever the government takes away your property, whether it takes it away through eminent domain or it takes away your right to use your property in some way through regulatory takings, it has to pay you if that taking is not 
is not necessary to protect public health and safety. And that's important because if you think about it, you know, government does have the power, a limited power, or at least it should be a limited power, to stop you from using your property in a way that would harm someone else or that would harm somebody else's rights. So a government can tell you, hey, you can't light fireworks up, you know, on your property uh, because it's a, s- a serious fire risk or, you know, after 10 p.m., you can't have a party in your backyard that's noisy because your neighbors have to sleep. You can't pollute, um, you know, because then your neighbors can't breathe. So, so you know, there are things that, that government can do. And, and the reason that government has the power to stop you from using your property in those ways is because you don't have a natural right or a right to harm somebody else. So government is protecting other people's rights. But that's But that's where the power stops. And anything else that the government tries to do over and above that, it needs to compensate people for that taking because the government's taking away your private property or your right to use your private property. And so that's that's what the Private Property Right Protection Act does. So if the government comes in and says, hey, you can't paint your house pink or you can't rent your house to overnight guests as a short-term rental on Airbnb or you can't put a second story on your home or uh, you know you have to set aside 30% of your property if you want to develop it as a, a wildlife preserve when the government imposes these aesthetic preferences these aesthetic regulations these regulations that go above and beyond what is necessary to protect health and safety then under the Arizona law they have to pay people what it costs for taking that property right away Now, what I like about this law is not that it compensates people for the taking, but that it really forces bureaucrats to think about the cost of regulation. Because all of these egregious stories that we've been telling throughout this conversation, the reason that government, one of the reasons at least, that government overreaches when it comes to property rights is because property rights, with few exceptions, are not very well protected in court because government knows that it can get away with it and because government has no idea what costs these regulations are imposing on people. And so the the Arizona law flips that and it says, look, somebody's got to pay for the costs of these regulations. It's not fair to make the property owner bear the burden of that. If you want to impose these regulations, then you, government, and of course that means the community and the taxpayers, need need to pay for these rights that you're taking away. And what's great is that a lot of times, you know, this this law's been on the books in Arizona for almost 15 years, and we studied it extensively. Um, I've been involved in a lot of cases uh, brought under this law, and and what we found out is that in a lot of circumstances, government just when they are faced with the true cost of the regulation then they decide not to take away people's property rights in the first place. So one example that I really like is a couple of years after the law passed, uh, Maricopa County, which is the largest county in Arizona, it's where Phoenix is, it decided to pass a, a building permit moratorium on all property near Luke Air Force Base. And so this means that anything that you wanted to do, any permission you had to seek from the government to build on your property, to improve your property, to fix something on your property, automatically denied for an unspecified amount of time. So, and, and the reason the government gave is they said, well, you know, we're not sure. There's a lot of undeveloped or underdeveloped property around the Air Force Base. We're not sure how developing that property would affect the Air Force Base. So while we study it, we're just going to tell everybody that they have no right 
to use their property. <laughs> so what that meant is that some people had vacant lots that they had purchased to put a home on. So as you can imagine, the value of that property dropped like 95% overnight because now you just have a vacant desert lot that you can do nothing with. Um, other people, there was a military veteran who was told by his doctor that he needed to put in a therapeutic pool. Um, he was not allowed to do that because no permits were going through. Somebody else had an electrical problem in their home that was actually a, a hazard and had to fix and couldn't do that because they couldn't get the permit. Um, so, you know, again, it, here's a major regulatory taking going on that would probably go uncompensated outside of Arizona because the law typically says that if government doesn't take your property away completely, it doesn't take title to your property like it does through eminent when it uh, t does so through eminent domain, then the government doesn't have to pay because they're still leaving you with some some value, right? They're only taking away your right to use your property in some way, but they're not taking your property away completely, so they don't have to pay. But under the Arizona law, that wasn't true. So. At the Goldwater Institute, we got together 200 property owners uh, and, and filed millions of dollars worth of claims against Maricopa County. And we said, look, it, here, here's all these property rights that you took away from these people, and here's how much it's going to cost you, so pay up. And when the government got the bill, they took one look at it, and they said, you know what, we're just going to rescind this ordinance. And instead, they went back and they looked and they said, well, we don't actually really need this. There's really no reason to stop these people from building on or improving their property. So they just got rid of the ordinance altogether rather than pay the bill. And actually that is a great outcome because the people want, you know, they wanted to be able to use their property. They didn't necessarily want the money. They wanted to use their property. Government was faced with the true cost of the regulation and decided that it wasn't worth it and property rights were protected. And we did all of that without actually having to step foot in court. So it's a great law. It's functioned very well. Um, I would argue that uh, it reinstates uh, people's property rights and, and, and restates the importance of people's property rights in Arizona. Um, and it can serve as a model for states across the country. And so we're, we're hoping to be able to bring this law to, um, to other states to protect people's property rights. And, and again, really to, to get government to internalize some of these costs. Well, yeah, that's a great outcome. As unpopular as this is among people on the left, and I'm not sure exactly why that is, it seems like this should and could be universal at the state level. So hopefully that'll that'll continue to spread. Um, I was hoping to ask a few more theoretical questions for a few minutes. Sure, that's all right. of course. So first of all, many conservatives today take as given or obvious that judges' job is to defer to legislative bodies. But as you point out in your book, that's actually a progressive ideal going way back. What is the right approach there to judicial deference? Yes. You know, th this is one, one of those dirty phrases that we hear thrown around today is judicial activism. And this is something uh, that, as you say, we don't just hear on the left, we hear it on the right. Now, now what it, what it, actually means is when the court takes some sort of action uh, to do something that people, when people don't like the outcome. It's, a, it's actually a very outcome-driven descriptor because I think conservatives, just like liberals, like it when the court steps up and strikes down a law that they don't like, but suddenly it's judicial activism and it's a bad thing if the court step in and strike down a law that they do like. Uh, the real job of courts, of course, is to adjudicate. Um, they, there are three branches of government, 
right? There's the legislature, there's the executive, whether it be the governor or the president, and then there's the courts. And they are co-equal branches of government. And the court's job is to protect people's rights when the legislature and the executive fail to do so. And I think what is what is so shocking about um, the way that we look at when we accept sort of this judicial abdication or when we say that that courts just have to defer to whatever it is that the legislatures do because they're representing the will of the people, we forget that we have a constitution because some things, namely fundamental rights, are protected and, and, are, and are, we have deliberately taken outside of the realm of democracy or our democratic republic. We've said that they're not subject to mob rule the will of the majority, or as in many cases, the will of the wealthier, well-connected minority. Uh, these are things that are fundamental national natural rights that can never be taken away by any government or any, any mob rule, uh, and they have to be protected. That's why we have a constitution. So the court's job, you know, there, there's a, a very broad area where we have said that government um, and and people that are represented by the government can make policy decisions. But when the government goes outside of those uh, designated areas and intrudes on people's rights, then they're violating the Constitution. And then it is absolutely the job of the courts to step in and stop the government from doing that. They, they are sort of the last line of defense uh, to protect our rights. And what's even more amazing, you know, I, I have throughout my career uh, spoken to a lot of legislatures. I have testified before legislative committees. And a lot of times it's pushing back against an overreaching law that's violating somebody's rights. And it's me saying, I'm an attorney, I'm an expert on the constitution. And what you're trying to do is unconstitutional. And I'll tell you nine times out of 10, maybe even 10 times out of 10, the legislators that are proposing this law say, well, that's not really you know, our concern or our job, we're not thinking about the constitution. We're just thinking about what policies we like and what policies are desirable. And that's for the courts to decide. Well, first of all, I would argue that that's absolutely not true because every elected official takes an oath to uphold and defend the constitution, which means defending and upholding and respecting our constitutional rights. Um, but the fact that many of our elected officials or even unelected bureaucrats, which um, are exceedingly the people who end up making these rules that affect uh, vast aspects of our lives, you know, if they don't think that they need to worry about the Constitution and all they need to do is think about whatever policies make sense to them, whatever policy preferences they want to impose, then the only branch of government that that is still there to protect our constitutional rights uh, is, is the courts. So, you know, the, the role of the courts is not to, when a court would overstep its boundaries is when it would go out of its way to write a law um, or to decide what the legislature should have done uh, or what policy might be more preferable. That's not the job of the courts. That's the job of the legislative body. But the job of the courts is to stop um, the legislators or the unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats from passing laws that take away or intrude upon our rights. So one thing that you said at some point is that property rights are the foundation of all other rights. Now, to me, that makes perfect sense. But to a lot of people, I think that will sound bizarre. So explain a little bit about what you mean by that and how property rights is foundational. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, property rights, they are a 
critical ingredient in freedom. So the, the right to life, the, the right to live one's life as one sees fit, that is only secured by protecting property rights. So if you have a right to your life, then by extension, you have a right to your person or a property right in your person, right? I own myself. And that's the right to self-ownership. And so then by implication, I have the right to the fruits of my labor. Now, conversely, if you don't have a right to your property, then the, the right, you don't have a right to the fruits of your labor, then, then you're not free. In fact, you're enslaved, right? That, that, is, that is the definition of lacking a property right in yourself and to the fruits of your labor. So that's why property rights are the guardian of all other rights. And if our property rights aren't secure, then no other rights are secure. So think about the First Amendment. You know, if we can't own churches or if we can't own newspapers or computers or printing presses, then we don't have freedom of religion and we don't have freedom of speech. We can't exercise those things if we can't own the property to be able to do that. Um, if we can't own firearms, then we have no right to self-defense. Then the Second Amendment is meaningless. You talked about people, government officials and police bursting into people's homes without justification. If we can't be secure in our homes, then we have no right to privacy or the private enjoyment of our lives. And again, you know, if we can't keep the fruits of our labor, if we don't, if we don't have the right to our income or to our businesses, then we have no prosperity. We don't have the right to earn an honest living, which is literally the American dream. That's why people come to America, is to pursue that dream. And so ultimately, if we don't have property rights, then we don't have freedom. And, and again, that, that really is slavery. I mean, slavery is the inability to own oneself and the fruits of one's labor. So it's a total deprivation of property rights. So again, if you don't have property rights, you, can't have, you cannot have any other rights. Okay. So I, I, have, I hesitate to ask this next question because it's a big one. But I also would regret not asking you since, you know, you're, you work in this field <laughs> professionally all the time and know a lot about it. One of the foremost experts on property rights, I figure I should ask this. And it has to do with the property origination problem. So I under, understanding that this could itself be the topic of a podcast, um, I'm wondering if there's a way you could briefly address this. So there's two, a couple of related issues. One issue is that virtually all land property at some point was stolen. And probably all land or almost all land was stolen many times throughout history. So that's one issue. And then the other issue is that ultimately there had to have come about private property through land property that was used communally. And so how do you, what's the, what's the basic theoretical justification for today's property deeds given the original the, the original acquisition of property and then how property was transferred, i.e. often stolen throughout the ages. Sure. Yeah. And, and you're right. This is, this is a, an area that would probably take one or two podcasts to completely unpack. But I think, you know, I think the, the question kind of comes down to, okay, how do, how do we justify property ownership? And we can look at sort of a Lockean theory, right? When I take myself and my labor and I mix it with, property or I, I mix it with, you know, something else, then I create something. And so therefore that's my property and that, and that justifies my ability to keep my property. Now you're, you're right. Property that is stolen or that is acquired by uh, force or by coercion 
is not rightfully somebody's property. Um, that's actually true of taxes in a way too. You know, you talk about taxation and technically any taxation that is taken involuntarily, which I think is most taxes, I think most of us probably don't voluntarily turn our money over to the government. I mean, that is the fruit of my labor, right? That is the, that is the compensation, the property that I get for, um, you know, for doing work. That's the fruit of my labor. And it's taken away essentially at gunpoint from the, by the government, right? Because if I don't pay my taxes, I'll be arrested and I'll go to jail. Um, but, you know, in the case of taxation, although I think it's technically true that taxation is a form of property deprivation, it, it would be really hard to have a government without taxation. And I think it would be hard to revert to some sort of system of voluntary taxation from what we have now. So in that case, what we do is we do the next best thing. We say, okay, we have to make sure that taxation is really limited and it's only used to do things that government can justifiably do. So the way we do that is we limit the scope of government. We say government is limited only to the function of protecting people's rights. And even if we go a little broader than that and we say, well, government can use tax money to provide services, I would argue that that's not technically a constitutional function of, well, it's not it's not a desirable function of government. It is in some ways constitutional. Um, but then we need to make sure that government is using the tax money to provide services that are truly public. So that, that's sort of how we get a, around that on the taxation side. Um, when you look at other property, I mean, you mentioned Native Americans before. Our our ancestors, people, actually not, not even technically all of our ancestors. I mean, my family um, is all a relatively recent immigrant family, so it's it's not even really technically my ancestors, right? But but you can look at our government and you and you look at the way that they have over history deprived people of their property and that property has then been given to, um, you know, uh, other people. Essentially, you could say, well, you know, I didn't earn my property in some ways because if you take it all the way back uh, in history, you know, government first stole that property out of the commons or took it out of the commons. And although it is true that perhaps that the government or the person that took that property took it by coercive means, it's not something that I'm responsible for doing today, right? And, and, and although it may not be the fault of the people whose property was taken, it's also not my fault. And so when we talk about things like, you know, do we really own or do we really deserve our property? Well, I suppose in some ways nobody really deserves anything that, you know, that we just come upon via circumstance. So you have to look again at, you have to kind of get past that and you have to look at, okay, but what is it that I am actually entitled to? What is it that I actually earned? And so again, I own myself. There is that that is an essential na natural right that is essential to human survival and human thriving. I own myself. So then by extension, I own the things that I create, I own my body, I own the things that I create, I own the things that I earn myself. And and that really is to me, the only fair way of justifying property rights and, and things that happened in the past and things that were, you know, right or wrongly perpetuated by people that were not me um, or that, you know, that have no relationship um, to us, you, it, it's, it's just too esoteric to be able to go back to that. And so, we just, you know, we look at the things that are extensions of ourselves um, and the things that we've rightly earned. Um, I think, you know, when we look at what property rights guarantee, Ayn Rand had some quote, and I'm going to botch it because unlike Tim, I, I can't memorize quotes word for word, but she said, you know, 
property rights don't guarantee that somebody's going to earn property, but they guarantee that if you earn it, then you own it, right? Then you get to keep it. So um, anyway, I think I think that's really the best way to, and the only way to to be able to look at private property practically. Okay. Well, I know that Ludwig von Mises has some comments about that in his book, Socialism. If you have interesting essays or books that you think are pertinent to that point, because again, you know, we can't, that's a really big topic, It is, but I'm happy to drop those in the show notes if you have any suggested readings for people. Absolutely. So let's talk about, let's, let's lighten up a bit and go more personal. (laughs) We've talked a bit about how you, how you got hooked up with Timothy Sandifer. I'm wondering generally, how did you get on this path of becoming an attorney, an attorney fighting for people's ind- people's rights and property rights, and getting on with the Goldwater Institute? Yeah, so you know, I mentioned that my family um, is an immigrant family. My family came to the United States uh, in the 20th century from Italy. Um, they, you know, they came to pursue the American dream. I remember my great grandmother. Fortunately, um, I was I was able to get to know her before. She passed away and she always just used to say, oh, you're so lucky to live in America. You're so lucky that you have the freedom to dress as you like and, and to, to, you know, go to school and, and to have a job. And of course, she was speaking generally, but she was also speaking about women, that, that we have so many rights here in the United States that I think we take for granted um, and that, that many people in the world even today do not have. And so... I was really, you know, my family, um, they owned small businesses. My grandfather owned a gas station and auto repair shop in Detroit that my father also worked in. And I was just, I wasn't actually raised in a political family. In fact, growing up, I, I never knew how my parents voted. But what I did know is that they believed very much in hard work and that you are entitled uh, to the fruits of your labor, and that you shouldn't rely on anybody uh, to give you anything, and that if the government does give you something, it's probably going to ask for something in return, and um, it's better to just work hard uh, and and earn um, what you deserve, and then you don't owe anybody anything, and then you really have the ability to you know, create your life as you see fit. And so um, my family was just always very grateful for the freedom that they were able to uh, experience in the United States. Uh, I was the first in my family to go to college, and I chose Hillsdale College because I had actually I was it was in high school and I was taking an economics class, which I'm not even sure is required these days. But at the time, we were all supposed to take economics, and the teacher was you talked about Mises. Well, the teacher was a Keynesian, so the teacher just basically spent the entire class teaching us that the entire economy is and should be run by the government, the central government. And that's what got us out of the Great Depression. And that's what enhances people's lives. And that's what makes that's what makes the economy work. And this just seems so foreign to me, even though I was not a student of economics at the time. But knowing everything that my parents had told me about America and American freedom, and, you know, I had studied the founding period a little bit. And it just, it didn't seem like that was the sort of thing that we all fought for. So I went out in search of you know, what else was out there? There must be some contrary opinion. And I actually stumbled upon Ludwig von Mises. And as a high schooler, I can't claim that I understood everything that he wrote. If anyone who's tried to read Mises, even as an adult, um, will attest to the fact that it can be quite dense at times. Um, He's very, very German. In yes, some of his yes, very much so. Um, even though he was, he was Austrian. Austrian. Well, yeah. 
but anyway, um, but, but, you know, but it, but it was, it, it was the principles um, that really struck me as being, um, you know, just so much more in line with what I knew to be true about America. And so I found when, when I was kind of looking in to find more about Mises, I found that Hillsdale College actually housed uh, Ludwig von Mises' uh, personal collection and had been brought over to the United States. Um, and and there's a whole Mises library at Hillsdale. And that's how I learned about Hillsdale College, which interestingly enough happened to be in Michigan, um, which is where I was born and raised. So I applied to go to Hillsdale. I went to Hillsdale. Uh, and while I was there, I studied economics and history. And um, I that's when I really started to get interested in the law because I realized at the time that, you know, governments throughout history, I mean, we have a constitution, we have all these American principles that I believed in and that my family held dear, and yet government uh, at at every opportunity would abuse those principles. And one of the ways that we can prevent that from happening is is to go to court, as I said, the, the sort of the last resort, uh, the protector of our rights. And I actually started working at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, which is um, the Goldwater Institute's sister organization that's free market think tank that's located in Michigan. And it was during that time that I actually met Clint Bullock, who is a co-founder of the Institute for Justice, really co-founder of the libertarian or free market legal movement. And he convinced me to go to law school. He said, you know, this is really the way that you can stand up and protect people's rights and, and actually make a career out of it. So I did go to law school. Interestingly enough, uh, it was actually Clint Bullock who convinced Tim Sandifer to go to law school as well, though I didn't know it at the time. And so we sort of joke that that Clint Bullock sort of set us on this path to to meet and eventually to be married. Um, and, and so I said, well, then does that mean that I can uh, blame Clint whenever, you know, Tim doesn't take out the trash or, or doesn't do the laundry? <laughs> I don't think it extends that far. Um, but anyway, um, it was, I, I actually followed Clint. He was, you know, I, I really admired him and I, I followed him to Arizona, which hadn't been on my radar to begin with, but because he opened up the Goldwater Institute's litigation center, it was the first litigation center to be focused on states and state courts rather than federal courts. Um, and they needed a, an attorney. And so he hired me and I was one of the first attorneys to work at the Goldwater Institute. And now, of course, Clint Bullock is, is, has left the Goldwater Institute for bigger and better things. He is now on the Arizona Supreme Court as a justice um, on the Supreme Court. And Interestingly enough, when he left uh, the Goldwater Institute, he hired Tim as his replacement. We were already married at the time. So um, it's sort of funny how, you know, the family that sues the government together stays together. That is certainly true of the <laughs> Sandifer family. Yeah, that's great because, you know, lawyers aren't, don't always have the uh, reputation of being... Um, well, they, they, they tend to be argumentative, let's face it. Well, I'll tell you, when I was in law school, I, I told myself two things. I said, one, I will devote my career to protecting and defending liberty. And two, I will never marry a lawyer. And I got <laughs> one out of two. Hey, one out of two isn't bad. <laughs> That's really funny. So what are your current projects beyond what you've mentioned so far? Well, you know, I, I still do a lot of work um, on private property rights. And I, I mentioned that, but one of the things that I'm most proudest 
of um, that I've worked on at the Goldwater Institute is something called the right to try. Uh, this is a law that we started in the states because, again, Goldwater is focused on those principles of federalism and that states have the power to step up and protect people's rights when the federal government fails to do so. Uh, and right to try is a law that started in the states, passed in just about every state, and then became federal law a couple years ago. And it protects the right of dying people uh, to try medicines that could prolong and save their life, even if those medicines haven't been haven't been approved by the federal government or by the FDA. And um, I am, you know, I have just had the great fortune of being able to work with patients and doctors and and people on both sides of the political aisle. It is has been a very bipartisan issue all the way throughout the United States and all the way up. Um, and seeing that law adopted by over 40 states and then seeing it signed into law at the federal level and now seeing it work. Um, patients who otherwise would have been left to die without options because the government told them that they couldn't try these medicines because they still had to go through 10 years of bureaucratic red tape. Um, being able to get access to those medicines and being able to not only improve their lives, but but really just make those fundamental decisions for themselves has, has, has just been an incredible experience. Um, so that is probably the project that I'm most proud of and that um, we, we are always working on next steps. So healthcare is a field that uh, unfortunately the government has become more and more involved in in the past uh, decades. And, um, and there's a lot of work to be done to scale back on some of that red tape, especially in the era of COVID. So how can people follow you and your work. Yeah, so and the Goldwater Institute. So the Goldwater Institute, we have a website goldwaterinstitute.org. We also have a blog and I, I recommend people go there because we blog just about every day. It's indefensiveliberty.blog. Those are two places where people can find the Goldwater Institute. Um, we also have a Twitter and Facebook account so you can follow the Goldwater Institute there. I myself uh, am also on Twitter at CM Sandifer and you can also find me on Facebook and I usually post a lot of the work that we're doing at the Goldwater Institute, including a lot of relevant work about private property rights. And then, of course, if you if you want to if you haven't read the book and you want to read Cornerstone of Liberty to, to learn more, um, it is available wherever fine books are sold or on Amazon.com. I didn't know you blogged so frequently. Is there like a weekly email list through there, Goldwater? Indeed there is. Yeah. You can, you can sign up on, on the website. I think we have a link up on the blog as well. Um, but yeah, we send out, we send out a weekly email every Saturday that gives people just a little taste of what we've been blogging about throughout the week. And then of course you can also subscribe to our blog. Okay. Yeah. I'm not on that. So I'll have to go get on. Well, that. We need to remedy that right away. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Maybe uh, we can chat again down the road on subsequent projects for you and you and Timothy. Always happy to come so, back. There's a lot to talk about, unfortunately, but there's also a, a lot of good work being done, which is fortunate, and I remain optimistic. Well, one thing I'm interested in, you know, I'm in Colorado, so I'm interested in why there's not more four corners sort of cross state work, or maybe it exists and I just don't know about it. But it seems like there to me that there's more room for some co collaboration there. Well, I completely agree. Although one thing I will say, we just mentioned right to try. Um, Colorado is the first state to pass right to try. So you can be, you can be proud of that. And that was by design. We intentionally went to Colorado instead of starting in our home state of Arizona, because uh, Colorado is a purple state. We wanted to demonstrate that right to try is is bipartisan. The right to try to save your own life is not a Republican or a Democrat idea. It's just a human idea. So 
Um, so there, there's a I small example that. of year, that. What year was that? Gosh, that was, I want to say, was it 2015? Okay. 2014 I'll try to 15. go back and, and find a news story or something and drop it in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, and thanks. For, that's, that's great work, so thanks for that. Our guest today has been Christina Sandifer, co-author of the 2015 book, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America. This has been the Self and Society Podcast. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com. Mm-hmm.